It's April 4th, 2022, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's headlines. And the first one we got here is the Navy shipbuilding request may be in violation of the law in Hoff's warrants. And so apparently what's going on here is that uh, the the Navy like said that they're going to have nine new ships in this uh, in the FY23 budget. And they're actually double counting potentially one of the amphibious assault ships, the LHA-9. Uh, from a previous time so now they're saying well it's actually eight ships and then Inhofe is here saying well if the navy says it needs 355 in the battle force and they're decommissioning 24 and only building eight new ones we're getting a smaller navy and so he didn't particularly like the requests but you know i guess you would have to trade off and give a whole bunch more money to actually get there but <laughs> anything anything on this one yeah, it's weird. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's weird that they had the same issue in 21. And, you know, so they got that feedback in 21. They corrected it in 22. And now they're kind of trying to play the same game. I, I really hope it's a mistake because uh, this kind of stuff just, uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but this kind of stuff actually, you know, really disrupts some of the other conversations that oftentimes need to happen and it creates kind of bad blood. And so, yeah, it, bad uh bad form here it's also though i mean we'll talk i think we could talk about one of the other articles this whole uh the whole amphibious assault ship uh buy is something that the navy clearly uh doesn't want to do given they're trying to stop the production line so um you know we'll maybe maybe this is part of it is they they really want to try to get as much credit for the ones in the pipeline and and, and shut down that production line so may have been some other things driving this yeah, well, we can just jump over there. I, I guess that was on the LPD, the San, San Antonio class, that they're actually going to kind of start ramping that down. The previous requirement was for 31 amphibious ships, uh, which would you know help Marines kind of get to where they needed to be in the Marine Expeditionary Unit, an amphibious ready, uh, ready group. Uh, but they're going to say, well, we don't actually need 31 that could drop to 24 at the, the kind of low end of that. So they might reduce that fleet by eight amphibious hulls. Uh, so I think that's what you're getting at. I guess there's going to be a lot more things getting filled in there, like the light amphibious warship, right? The loss, other things potentially, but I guess people yeah, are always... good. Oh yeah. I was just gonna say, yeah, I think the, the LHA is, is a part of that amphibious requirement study. And it looks like, it looks like the uh, um, it looks like that's going to get caught up. Maybe that's so. That's what I was trying to get at. There is, it looks like that may get caught up in the uh, in this whole like let's let's end the production for a bunch of these ships. Which um, you know, it's clear that the Navy wants to turn their attention to to, to some of these other uh, other ships in the pipeline and and start to start to t- stand down some of these uh, some of these other production lines. So yeah, you're right. That's the LPD, but it looks like the LHA is also being, being assessed as part of that amphibious requirements study. So I guess we'll see where that comes out. That we will. Next one we got here is the, basically on the air force, right? The air force wants to retire 33 F 22s buy more F 15 E X's in the new budget from the drive. The drive kind of put together a nice little list here of the FY 23, uh, aviation budget items. And so the first one here is that the Joint Strike Fighter, we're getting 24 fewer than last year, the 61 count. The Air Force also wants 24 F-15 EX Eagles, which is twice as many as last year. Um, And then I guess the big one there is retiring 33 F-22 Raptors. Uh, So the inventory would go down towards 153 with that uh, if they were allowed to retire those Raptors. Were you pretty surprised to hear that Raptors were in the mix or... Is that pretty bold on the the retire and replace kind of thing? No, because these ones that they are talking about are going to be are, are your older ones, the block twenties, and they are just a nightmare to maintain. They're going to you know have to get you know all kinds of modernization done. Basically, you're kind of almost like rebuilding the jet. So um, you know, there's already been a lot of efforts to extend the service life of F-22s and. These ones are these ones are the ones that are probably you know close to their service life. They're mostly training, non-combat kind of kind of functions. So so no, this kind of makes sense. But it does look like you know this is the first uh, kind of chip at the F-22s. The Air Force is clearly looking at other platforms to to perform that air superiority mission in the long term. So so yeah, I think you'll see over the ensuing years the uh, more F-22s trying to be retired. We'll see we'll see if Congress you know allows these or 
if they fight this from the start but yeah yeah i wonder you know what's the sortie rate or like how many hours they put on a raptor every year is it significantly less than an f-16 or some other kind of workhorse well usually because they for a long time the f-22s were not used in in, in iraq and afghanistan that started to change um, towards the end, and especially in Syria, um, where uh, you know those uh, the F-22s when we're you know in in proximity to more like higher end threats, uh, they became really important. And they also started to perform more quarterback kind of roles for the block for the uh, uh, you know the fourth gen fourth gen fighters, and so you know they they provided a situational awareness and you know, a lot of the comm relays and things like that. So. So yeah, they, they have more hours on them, at, you know, in the last uh, number of years. But historically, they they've kind of been preserved for the high end fight, and uh, you know, so so yeah, the 16s and 15s have a lot more hours on. Uh, you know, the Air Force here is also trying to plus up uh, NGAD, so that's going up to 1.7 billion, and then the Navy also trying to shift its focus to their own NGAD, a uh, next generation air dominance platform. And so they're actually looking to stop buying the F-18EFs, which I think they were trying to do that in the past. And, you know, I guess it's always a question whether Congress will let them. Yeah, the uh, yeah, I mean, it makes sense for them to get rid of a lot of the older, some of the older, uh, you know, uh, Super Hornets. Some of them have been around for, for a while. And so they clearly want to shift the fleet to, you know, they're going to have F-35s and then they, you know, they want to have the, these, this new NGAD. Effort. So I think they see just like, um, you know, like the Air Force sees that, you know, some of these some of these legacy platforms are not going to be able to be survivable in, in some of the fights. So um, they're, they're trying to move towards the towards the next next uh, generation. I am curious. The one thing about the Navy's, uh, you know, functions when it comes to carrier operations is some of these exotic, you know, platforms like we've talked about with F-35. It's like not necessarily compatible with kind of the sea, uh, you know, the, the abrasion and all the, uh, you know, kind of kind of chaos of operating at sea. So I'm kind of curious to see how their how their NGAD uh, fighter bomber, whatever that thing is, the, the total mission set it has, uh, what that looks like because um, F-35 seems to be taking a beating, and uh, you know I'm kind of curious to see if this is some new exotic thing. I don't know if they'll go stealthy, you know, kind of like a stealth material. Or if they'll, you know, do something, uh, you know, maybe unexpected. But, but yeah, it definitely seems like uh, if it's going to be a carrier uh, thing to replace all the F-18s, it's really going to have to be able to stand up uh, to the uh, to the brunt of carrier operations. And yeah, I guess we'll see long term. You know, I guess we'll see over the next few years how the F-35, you know, C models how they handle, you know, long term long term operations. But yeah, definitely kind of interesting to see how fast they're trying to get rid of uh, the F-18s. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Well, in, in this case, I think it, they're going to shut down the production They're just going to stop buying them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is always a big decision. But, you know, it'd be interesting if, like, with NGAD, they try to go, like, with a, a partial F-35 model where you just have completely different, like, hardware platforms, potentially, but you share a common mission system interface set or something like that. Um, I wonder if they're kind of playing in the same kind of ecosystems of family of systems yeah i mean i think we'll see we we don't really have any proof that this modular approach will work very well you know i mean look at the uh, lcs right i mean that was supposed to be modular so we'll we'll see how good the air force i get and maybe i get how how actually modular they are um and you know this ability to i, I think the one thing to look out for is this idea of like having the demand uh, versus, you know, or, or I'm sorry, unmanned versus optionally unmanned, you know, is that going to be how they introduce this or is it going to be um, kind of a fully unmanned kind of thing like uh, to, to, you know, basically be a wingman to uh, some of the, you know, F-18s and F-35s. So, yeah, I don't think we have a lot of details on it, but uh, it will be, it'll be interesting to see how they, how they roll that out. But definitely one of the things with uh, NGAD is that it's going to be as expensive maybe slightly less. I think I read like 10% less than F-35s, uh, but it's going to be pretty hard, I think, to maintain the entire fleet of legacy platforms if you're buying F-35s and you're buying NGADs at the same time. I mean, that's going to be, that's going to be put a lot of pressure on the budget. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they play that. It'd be interesting if you just like, could, 
could you almost uh, specialize nations in an allied set and just be like, all right, y'all, Germany, Europe, you know, others, Japan, we'll just give you our kind of like fourth gen fleet. And you guys, that gives you something quick that you can ramp up spending on and operations and maintenance and competencies. And then we will specialize, you know, like how we specialize in potentially nuclear submarines or something like that. You know, just get a division of labor almost going with allies. Yeah, I just don't know at this point. I mean, allies do actually buy a lot of F-16s and I don't know about the F-18s. I don't know if they export those, but I mean, 16s are bought by by a lot of different allies and uh, 15, right? A lot of the Middle Eastern partners have uh, really high-end versions of the F-15. So, I mean, some of that is being done, but I think we're moving to an area where, you know, most of our allies that, that recognize the threats, you know, want to have those, you know, I mean, I think they're kind of wrong, but uh, they want to have these exotic exotic platforms, right? I mean, you see all of Europe and Canada, you know, going all in on the F-35. So, you know, I think, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if they want our fourth gen platforms, you know. Even if we just gave it to them on a platter. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe they would be offended at that. It's like, what, you Americans can get your stealthy aircraft while we have these, like, (laughs) you know, missile baits flying around. Yeah, yeah. Oh, all right. Well, yeah, moving on to the unmanned world. The Navy is now trying to buy the first four production examples of the MQ-25 Stingray tanker drone. It'd be interesting to also see if that starts bridging out into different types of roles and missions. Yeah, I like the, I like the, uh, I like the MQ-25. I mean, in terms of, uh, we've you know, like we talked about before, a lot of these platforms, if we're operating from a carrier that's, you know, second island chained back or you're operating from you know, Guam or, you know, one of some Marianas or something. I mean, you, you need, you need the legs to get, you know, to get into the theater if you're going to, um, you know, actually create some effects. So, yeah, I think having these sort of stealthy tanker drone, I think that's like a, I think that's a really good example of, uh, of how we might need to operate in the future, right? You're not going to be able to have the big tankers up there. Um, you're going to have something that's at least mildly survivable. So, yeah, this might be this might be the answer to kind of giving some of these fighters um, the legs they need to to actually be able to complete their operations. So, so yeah, this this makes a lot of sense. The Air Force here is also trying to again shut down the MQ nine Reaper drone uh, production line, or at least their halt their purchases, and they were successfully unsuccessful in that last year. We'll see if they're success, successful this year. The interesting part here was that they wanted to transfer 100 of 300 existing examples of the MQ-9 to a, quote, another government organization that it would not disclose. So I wonder <laughs> who's getting them and why aren't they just giving them to the Marine Corps who's buying five MQ-9s anyway? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I thought about that, too. I think, um, yeah, I think they're older. I don't know if they're the ones Marines want because uh, there's been like so many different iterations of MQ-9s. But yeah, I thought about that too. I was like, yeah, it was just uh, yeah, a transform to the Marine Corps. But um, yeah, who knows? Who knows what government organization that is? I, ca- I kind of thought it made more sense for like DHS because um, I, I know DHS has tried to, uh, um, you know, do more border operations with uh, with air, air platforms. So I thought that, but who knows? Spe- special Ops, CIA, you know, who knows? Who knows who it is? I mean, it seems kind of weird. Like, how many other countries would buy an MQ-9 if they could just get at it, except for ITAR, right? There's that other... I think someone had a, an article here that was like, hey, you know, it's impossible. Like, these are treated as though they were nuclear to some degree, nuclear-tipped missiles. Uh, we need to kind of get rid of some of these international traffic and arms regulations so that, you know, we can actually sell some of these drones and bolster our you know, defense base for us, like Turkey. Yeah. It's funny that they're getting all like the love and all the, right. Yeah. The experience to some degree and all of the, uh, the, the lauds there. So, I mean, how much are, is our industrial base getting hurt by that? Oh, I think we're getting incredibly hurt by ITAR. Uh, well, Bill, Bill Greenwald wrote a good, really good paper on it at the, uh, Atlanta council, which I thought, you know, went into some really good details about just how bad it is. I mean, and the fact that you have to get congressional approval for like almost every single sale uh, has to get, you know, get that, get that arduous approval process. I mean, that, that makes sense for, you know, I think for some things, I just think it should be more, 
you know, uh, there should be more criteria about what actually needs to get congressional approval. Like, so MQ-9s, you know, especially if they're, you know, small, like Hellfire type missiles or something like that. I mean, that's not, that's not going to like change the di- power dynamics, you know, in, in, in a global situation. I mean, like you said, Turkey and many other countries, China, they have drone programs that can do this. So why, why, why not let our, our uh, industrial base get in the game? Yeah, it doesn't always make a lot of sense. And I guess just to close it out here, the Air Force wants to get rid of 15 of 31 AWACS that you see sentries. And then they also want to um, get rid of some J-Stars as well, I believe. And then it seems yeah. like what's really kind of coming up the pike here is a big major program is the E-7 wedge tail to kind of gap fill whatever is going to actually happen. Yeah, the wedge tail makes, seems to make a lot of sense. Australia's using it, and, and you know, they're going to need something to backfill that. Um, I you know, definitely, definitely, uh, definitely think the, you know, space-based air, air moving target indicator capability is, uh, you know, is the way to go. I mean, that's going to give you that persistent, uh, persistent capability and, and uh, you know, a high threat environment uh, where, you know, a wedge tail, you probably wouldn't want it too close to the action because these types of aircraft typically are, uh, you know, are a target, right? I mean, you take out, I think even China, what we, uh, there was an article on, uh, some of the observations in terms of how China is operating, we've seen more of how the air force is, you know, how they're trying to get their concepts of operations together and employ, um, employ their air power. And they are incredibly dependent upon their, uh, their airborne early warning and control aircraft. So, you know, that would be a target for us. I would imagine that, you know, you take that out and you disrupt their ability to concentrate forces in, in, air, in certain areas and to be able to have that situational awareness. So, so yeah, you we probably want to move to space as you know at the earliest possible time, but uh, E seven might be might be a good gap filler there. You know, one thing that you reminded me of is uh, I was pretty shocked to learn how low on the totem pole the Chinese Air Force is in their military structure. Like they are just not prioritized at all. Have you have you heard about this? Like of their top hundred you know ranking military officers, like two or three of them are are actually from the Air Force. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're very army centric, um, and yeah, that's and rocket forces centric, I guess. Rocket well. rocket forces rocket force has a lot more a lot more power now. I mean, this was if you go back to World War II, this was a common situation that the Japanese had, where their army and the air force and navy, you know, well the air army and navy primarily, they were, you know, the army had most of the power, and so it was like hard for the navy to kind of. For them to actually do operations with the army, so I, th- I feel like some of that evolution that Japan had to go through, you know, actually fighting a war to figure out all those, you know, hey, we actually need to work together better here. I think China is is, is seeing that, and so a lot of the organizational changes they've made um, in the last couple of years have been about building a joint force, and so a lot of it is like, you know, they're developing joint doctrine and trying to figure out like how do we get everyone to play together. But it's clear that the army in their organizational structure is, uh, is, is the dominant force. So, yeah, I guess we'll see how that plays out if, uh, things ever go crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the, it was lucky for us that the army was dominant in Japan cause they, they were also the procurers of aircraft for the Japanese Navy rest. Yeah. Right. The U S Navy kind of had its own, you know, development center that created the air cool engine, kind of pushed it along and made sure like dive bombing was a part of, you know, Navy, concepts of operations so there's some kind of wisdom you know to to some of uh or they got lucky (laughs) (laughs) maybe there was some luck there i don't know i think there was some organizational wisdom there yeah yeah yeah, that's fair all right so let's get back to kind of the uh the space force taking over the gmti uh ground moving target indicator mission and that is contributing to the space force getting a roughly 40 percent increase in the biden request which is really ridiculously like that's a big increase for a service but i guess the, the space force is by far the smallest of all the services so they're requesting 24.5 billion in the 23 budget and this is kind of reflecting uh the urgency of uh defending satellites uh spotting hypersonic missiles and tracking them uh u.s nuclear command and control as well as 566 million for evolved strategic satcom uh, which is interesting. And did you hear, by the way, that I don't, 
this might not be on the SATCOM front, but related. Uh, the the Air Force actually did like an experiment with an F thirty five and Starlink. Did you see that one? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard, heard about that. I mean, that makes that makes sense. I mean, they've they've been doing um, they've been using. I mean, we've had different military platforms use commercial SATCOM. Um, I'm trying to remember what the uh, what the original was called that uh, they had, but this, yeah, it's not it's not completely uncommon for for us to have a commercial SATCOM backup. Um, but Starlink, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but. Uh, Maybe maybe that's the right one to pick. <laughs> yeah, and then GMTI, of course, uh, they're they're taking that over from the Air Force. So I wonder, did the the Air Force kind of like you just see that kind of money move start moving over at some point? Well, I mean, I don't know that there's really money to to move. I mean, it was always a battle between Space Force and Air Force, and in terms of their priorities, and you know, sometimes Space Force would get a little bit more. And sometimes, you know, they'd lose some of the battles. I think now they have, I think they have a really good justification for some of the things they need to do with resilience and um, some of the, you know, some of the expanding mission sets. And and then, yeah, the GMTI, I don't know how much of a player the GMTI was in that increase, uh, but no doubt that was a, that was a, a chunk of it. Um, so, you know, it's not like that money is available. I mean, the Air Force definitely probably had to take some hits in some areas that they did not want to, to, to give that increase to the space force. But, um, uh, but yeah, it sounds like they did, did pretty well for themselves and, and got, got a lot of funding. We'll see if this lasts. I mean, I think that's one of the things to watch is, uh, space forces right now going through a, you know, a big evolution, right? I mean, they're, they're trying to figure out their architecture. They're trying to get yeah, a million different things going and, uh, standing up a lot of new operations. So is this a blip? And, you know, will they continue to get this kind of budget or, or is this, uh, you know, kind of a one or two year deal and then they go back down to a lower level. So, yeah, we'll see. Well, I guess they got to make their move at some point, right? Because they've always, I think the, the overarching thesis at the beginning was space needs to have a larger share of whatever the total budget's going to be, right? So they got to make like you know, the current method, the way they, you know, push up budgets they're, they're just gonna have to make that move at some point right just be like well we're just gonna add a bunch of stuff and see what people say and with the inflation and everything maybe it's a reasonable time to to kind of force that movement yeah i mean i think a big part of it too is is having a direct impact on an operational mission i mean i think there's one thing to provide like a lot of you know it, space has mainly been like an enabler for a lot of things right i mean you can, we can provide the long haul comms, you know, right. It can provide, you know, weather situation awareness. It can provide, um, you know, the, you know, ISR to, you know, to some extent it can, you know, do some of those kind of like enablers, but now with actually like a GMTI type mission and maybe some of these other missions, they will be a little bit more in the fight. So I think that helps them to, uh, kind of justify or, you know, advocate for, for additional funding is, to actually say here's here's an effect we can provide right like we can do this if they're just in space protecting satellites from each other you know it's kind of a less of a compelling thing uh, but but now they're you know if they can get you know tactical tact support tactical missions uh that that will be key so i think that's i think that's where where we'll have to watch um yeah i thought there was some other good stuff in that article too kendall made some comments that um you know, our general posture has been to assume essentially impunity in space. Uh, we could put up expensive systems in small numbers, not worrying too much about them getting attacked. That era is over. So, yeah, I think it is interesting to see the Air Force Secretary saying those kinds of things. And, you know, maybe a little bit ironic given that OPIR is still being fielded, which will be <laughs> uh, a huge target. But, um, you know, I think uh, I think just hearing that Air Force leadership say those kind of things and recognizing that uh you know you can't we're not just going to be able to make small improvements to existing systems we actually need to kind of reevaluate how we do how we do business so definitely seem to be taking it seriously yeah on that to what degree is like opir redundant if you have a good hypersonic missile tracking layer yeah you know i i'd have to see the there's probably some gap i mean opir is really exotic sensor been years and years spent kind of uh making that uh kind of 
ironing out the risk in there and, and making it uh, a fieldable sensor. And so it's, it's, it's gotten a lot of investment, right? I mean, that was a priority for, for Dr. Roper. And so, you know, it's, it's definitely going to be a high-end asset and, and probably have a ton of capabilities that, you know, maybe the, these smaller, cheaper satellites won't quite be able to achieve. But at the same time, I mean, it does seem like the tracking layer is saying that they're going to be able to have sensitivity levels that will be able to show rocket and missile launches um, per, and be able to provide, you know, warfighter, uh, you know, detection data, uh, you know, quickly over a tactical data link. So if that's really true, if they can, if they can, if they can do all of that with the tracking layer, then, uh, yeah, I think, I think it does start to become like, what does OPIR really give you? that you can't get and is it is it give you a lot more does it give you a little bit more or uh yeah i think that i think that question has to be probably being batted around right now and i think opir already scaled back i think they are now focusing on the polar orbit which is probably one of those areas that will have some gaps and you probably do want something there but um yeah yeah i think i think uh i think that will be uh i think that'll be a question the space force will be batting around here in the near future so moving on to the Army, they're fielding the short-range air defense capability and to grow that to a battalion by year's end. And, of course, that's M-SHORAD, which has been uh, in Europe now for nearly a year as an urgent capability gap that was identified in 2016. So there you go. That's a five-year time frame to get it there. But uh, basically the M-SHORAD shoots off stingers, right? Short, short air defense um stinger missiles and 1.2 billion dollar contract to gdls who's the prime so uh i guess it's it's a needed capability gap right <laughs> seems to be something pretty obvious coming out of ukraine so so they're moving on it and i'll be interested to see the directed energy one whether that's actually useful and fieldable as well yeah they have uh yeah on the, on the direct energy one they actually are expected to field that this year so there was this there was a separate program on that um and I guess that will transfer back to the PEO for missiles in space uh, next year. But yeah, so I think those, there's going to be some, some of those direct energy prototypes that Raytheon is, is fielding. Um, but yeah, this, this system really makes a lot of sense. I mean, it makes a lot of sense for the Europe, Europe theater, but uh, you could definitely see this in uh, being pretty um, something, you know, it's mobile. Uh, it's not a huge vehicle. It has a, you know, a lot of capabilities there. Uh, Leonardo basically saying that it's a, uh, you know, can detect, identify, track air threats with onboard sensors, 360 degree area surveillance, uh, defeat uh, ground and air threats using multiple uh, kinetic effectors, um, integrates with uh, the Sentinel radar that the Army uses, and can can take down uh, uh, UASs at close range. So, so yeah, it sounds like it's a pretty capable platform, mobile, small, you know, reasonably priced. So. Uh, definitely something that uh, in the new new mode of, of you know, how we're going to operate in the future seems to kind of fit with that, that con-op. So, yeah, definitely see this one sticking around for a while. Yeah, it feels like, you know, with the, the integrated air missile defense, which I guess is for a little bit longer range, but all of these platforms seem to have, they are all integrated, <laughs> right? They all have like their own kinds of ways of making effects and having sensors and integrating that and crunching it. I wonder, you know, when, whether that will kind of call things out, like there will be some winners and things start globbing onto those structures or whether, you know, all of these things will kind of be disaggregated at some point, 10, 20 years in the future. I mean, I think at some point it has, they have to be disaggregated in the sense that you have this data is provided. I mean, this is the concept, right? With the unified data library and JADC2 at large is that all of this data from all the, all of the different sensors. So Sentinel radar, you know, sensors on these, you know, on these Shorad um, platforms, all of that is being fed into a, you know, a data lake that, you know, you can get access to if you have the right permissions, you have the right controls, et cetera. And you have a, you know, a need for it. And then, and then you have different systems with, you know, different integrating functions. So you take that data and um, you turn it into decision quality um, analysis and, uh, um, you know, information. And so, you know, I think at some point this data will all be sort of agnostic, but you will have different systems that integrate it in different ways for different effects. And so maybe an aircraft doesn't need, you know, certain, th certain data for, you know, a ground threat, 
Um, but it needs, you know, all the air threats and maybe it needs certain ground threats, but something on the ground needs all the ground threats and maybe some air threats. So, you know, at some point you, you know what data is available and you can pull, pull that from these different sensors. And I think that the, the key thing is that JADC2 is trying to do is to make that timely, right? So that if you're in an operation where, you know, your response time is fast, maybe AI level fast, you, you know, you can get access to the data. It's timely and it's relevant. So. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's the great JADC2 challenge. I think you wrote a post, blog post on that this morning. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was that was from our friend Dan Pat and uh, Brian Clark. Yeah. There, they had a that was a really good piece that they had, which was basically just saying like, right, JADC2 is going to have to kind of come up incrementally according to smaller composable force packages, and then eventually you can get to the the worldwide thing. But yeah. I guess they're they're example there was looking at ukraine they didn't start with like a big system of systems thing they just kind of started cobbling things together and based on the mission need you know started you know putting together force packages and integrating you know i guess different sensors and and effectors as they needed yeah no i I, yeah i really enjoyed that paper um those guys it was a longer really paper smart. too. Yeah. yeah I don't yeah, know how they do so much stuff. Like they I don't either. Paper out. I know, and they go in great detail. Like they were writing one on microelectronics and then like super detail and like yeah, they're smart guys. Um so yeah, no, I mean I think that is the right way, right? There's no way I think their point was there's no way for you to solve Jad C two yeah overnight and so this is or from the bureaucracy right or from yeah yeah just setting standards and saying comply with these is not going to solve this this is going to have to be uh uh, something that evolves over time and i think you know i think todd harrison's point about being concerned about how it's being integrated and how the services are working together i think is still valid i don't really like the you know joint program office idea but i do think you know i do think osd has some level of responsibility to kind of try to synchronize some of these efforts and make sure that project convergence and overmatch and ABMS are uh, at least partially aligned and moving in the right direction. So, um, yeah, a lot of challenges on that front. Sure. So I think IBCS is kind of, and that's the integrated battle command system from the missile defense system. So they have, they're trying to build that out into one kind of like, system of systems or kind of an ecosystem of JADC2 in the army. But then the army also has this Titan thing, uh, tactical intelligence targeting access node, which I guess is kind of the opposite, right? Instead of missile defense is beyond line of sight targeting and then trying to trying to get uh, some kinetic effects going there. So this one, the Titan is there. They put out a, a contract for Raytheon and Palantir to mature designs and then whatever kind of prototype they come out with, they'll kind of down select to one of those Raytheon or Palantir um, in the next phase. And so both of them got $8.5 million contracts in phase one and phase two is what they're going for right now. They're, they're uh, on track to award. So um, yeah, Titan, I guess this is part of project convergence. I, I would, I would still like to see like a map of, like all these things and how they work together. But yeah, I think con- Congress would, Congress would too. <laughs> <laughs> now I think, I think this one actually makes a lot of sense. This one is a, um, I think this fits actually with what Dan and Brian were saying, which is, this is a very specific application um, where, you know, you are trying to support, and this, this goes to their long range fires mission, right? So, so the, so the army is pretty focused on long range fires. That's, that's going to be crucial to their, the future of their, you know, relevancy um, for, for their force. And so this system is basically just saying, we know we have all these sensors out there in different domains, um, you know, probably cross service too, right? It's not going to be just army sensors. It's going to have to be, you know, Navy, Air Force, uh, Intel community, all that kind of stuff. So it's basically saying that's, let's pull those together because we know we're going to have to be able to get the best targeting possible. Targeting is going to be one of the biggest challenges, especially in like the China fight, because you're going to, you have to, you have it need to have a target solution in order to fire one of these missiles. And so uh, being able to get all that data integrated, uh, you know, and they say they're the way they described it is processing it with artificial intelligence to create targeting data and then delivering those solutions directly to the, to the fires network. And then, which will then determine the best available shooter to respond with. So I think this is actually a really good application. This is something that 
you know, can be actionable because you know the different missile systems you have. Uh, you can create, you know, this system can be created to pull in different data from different sources that will, you know, evolve over time. They'll probably include, you know, more and more data as new sensors are become available. So um, I actually like this. I think this makes sense. So they're not putting a lot of money towards this either. So, you know, do some prototyping and then, you know, see, uh, see how you can take it to the next level. But yeah, I hope they don't do too many prototypes. They do seem like they're doing like four or five rounds of prototyping. So at some point they'll probably just, uh, you know, field something, get it out there and then, you know, see how it works on a smaller scale and then build and, you know, build it or build it up over time. So I hope they actually field something. Don't do this too. Don't do prototyping for too long. Well, I mean, if they're doing all these project convergence type things, it's like semi field, like, right. That's maybe not, you've officially fielded it, but they're doing it. And then they're saying here after phase two, 14th month effort, then they will be down selected to a single provider. Right. And that will be the completed prototyping phase. So I guess that's the time frame. I had a, the other article I read on this one was that, yeah, it will move to a single vendor for complete system prototyping for phase two. And then it says the next stage will cover refinement of prototype capabilities in the fourth and final phase. We'll prepare a prototype that's ready to integrate future sensors and technology advancements. So, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe phase two, they actually will field it. And then the next the next stages that they're talking about are are just refinements adding on to that. So, yeah, maybe I read into that a little bit. But, yeah, anyway, uh, I think this it's good. We need to get more, you know, I think Congress is ready for some of this jadc2 capabilities to actually get fielded so yeah hopefully they can you know move rapidly into phase two and get that out there yeah maybe they just i don't know like andrel had some pretty cool videos that they put out last year of their like lattice and counter uas stuff and Mm -hmm. yeah and it was just and then they took it down they're like yeah it had some like you know i guess the government thought there was too much sensitive stuff in there and so they just took it down and i'm just like man but like you know, why not just make some of these like, you know, I was looking at some of these uh, old videos on just like, you know, weapon system stuff like of, of the old world. And they just had all of these historical archive videos of generals and like scientists that would just stand in front of something and show you how it worked. And it was <laughs> like like the gun to a nuclear bomb and shit like that. You know, <laughs> it was just like, well, they were pretty open about it, like just like letting people know what they were doing and how it kind of like comes together. And like that's just all closed off. And it feels like people just kind of respond to that with a couple ways. Either one, oh, things are very nefarious or two, like, oh, there's all this like fantabulous stuff going on that we just don't know what it is. Yeah, I mean, I I do understand the the security piece of it because you know, China really did take advantage of our openness um, and got a lot of intellectual property that that really advanced, uh, you know, their military capabilities. So, but was that from uh, our openness of having just like a video of just like concepts of operations and different systems, or was that? I mean, they just like straight up were able to hack systems or do human, you know, kinds of intelligence stuff. I think I think it was both. I mean, I think you're right. They they definitely hacked stuff, but be, but part of the reason why they were able to hack it was because it wasn't on classified systems. And so, you know, yeah, it may have been like, you know, sort of like confidential or, or uh, you know, FOUO or CUI or something. But yeah, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't the high, higher end. So I think, yeah, is it is is bringing that into like, you know, CUI, is that is that a level of protection that's going to be, you know, make it that much harder? Yeah, to some extent, uh, making it classified, that does make it a lot more challenging for adversaries. So I think that is a little bit why you see things being overclassified is there is a feeling that like if we don't have it on a classified system, it will either be hacked or, you know, somebody will get access to it, right? Stuff that's FOUO and CUI gets out all the time, right? There's not, it's, it's kind of hard to, hard to keep that stuff in there because people can email it to their home. So yeah, it's just, uh, it's a shame. Yeah, you're right. It's a shame that we can't kind of have that openness because some of the stuff that we talk about, we can't always, can't always know what's, uh, what the details are, but overmatch though the one thing is overmatch better be amazing i don't know i think i don't know if we're going to get to that but given given <laughs> given the uh congress seems to be uh getting to a uh, an uncomfortable point with the the uh lack of lack of detail so i think the navy is going to have to really show like some credible stuff i hope they're giving some really good demos behind the scenes 
Yeah, I mean, it is true. I mean, the Department of Defense puts out, like, an itemized list of everything it's buying and, like, details that to the world, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, so we could just go there to, to Project Overmatch. Navy dramatically, quote-unquote, increases funding for secretive Project Overmatch, and they're seeking $195 million for 23, a 167% increase over the $73 million the service received for the effort in 2022. And so, yeah, I guess Overmatch is the most secretive of these JATC2 projects from the services. They basically have been pretty tight-lipped about it for a long time. And um, it was kind of my presumption that they had been pulling money from a bunch of other kinds of accounts because Admiral Small there had been, I think, kind of like, like he'd been coordinating with almost like with all of the systems commands and, and the PEOs and stuff, and they kind of had some reporting structure to him. So, um, yeah, I'd be interested to see, you know, some details on that. Yeah, that's it's not that dissimilar from from ABMS to be honest, because like ABMS has some multiple PEOs kind of working different pieces of it. So I guess that I guess that kind of makes sense. But yeah, I hope they're providing better insight into you know some of the um, some of the appropriators because if they're if they're uh, increasing the budget big time here, um, they're going to get a lot more scrutiny. Someone's going to they're going to start wanting the details, and so yeah, maybe they the, should never have even named it, right? Just like, <laughs> especially just project like formal thing right never call it a yeah. project right yeah like, when you call it a project you're kind of asking for it <laughs> it's like it's code name overmatch like we know what we're talking about when we talk it but it is it's really just joint or like even just navy coordination on networking <laughs> you know like networking and interoperability working group yeah no that's, that's a really good point <laughs> one, one thing in that article that did catch my attention that I that I we I don't think we had heard about Overmatch was this uh, Admiral Small quoting him here. We have been working at a fever pitch to deliver on those goals, and I won't go into any specifics. But in general, what we are doing is bringing the best of world class commercial technologies, how the best companies in the world deliver capability to users, and we're bringing that into the Navy and doing it at speed and scale. So, kind of intriguing there that um, that Project Overmatch is so classified, but that the uh, the gist of it is commercial technology. So I guess, um, yeah, I guess we'll see what that looks like in the end, but, but good to see that they're focused on the commercial, you know, on the commercial front and, and not trying to, you know, reinvent a bunch of things here. But well, remember we, we talked about this before where there's that uh, PEO IWS chart where they were kind of talking about, they wanted to have like almost like a single uh, software backbone, right. Where they right, would deliver yeah. this in a DevSecOps way to, basically all of their mission platforms in the in the uh, ship world and it felt like they were almost trying to implement like what Shea, Nicholas Shalon was trying to get at in the air force but doing it in their own like navy way um yeah it did know. they seemed like a software factory almost kind of thing where yeah they um they would have their their own standards for for all ships would yeah basically be uh have the same kind of uh, infrastructure architecture and you'd be able to kind of integrate with it a lot more easily and do software development a lot more, you know, a lot faster. So yeah, that, I remember that article and that did seem, that did seem promising. I guess it's hard to, they are, they are, the Navy's had problems with um, Black Pearl and, and getting that to where they want it to be. So I don't know, hard to tell how much progress they've made on this front or what challenges still exist, but Yeah. It definitely it sounded like the right vision to have. So, yeah, I would also like. Do you know where um, Black Pearl actually sits? Like, where are they organizationally located? You know, I thought they were out in San Diego, but I, I'm not. I'm not. So they're they're that. just part of Navwar somewhere. They're just like a, an office in Navwar. I have to double check that. I'm I'm not I'm not 100 on that. Um, I forget who was actually leading it. I thought the people. Um, that I had seen seen involved with it were out of San Diego. So I don't know if it was actually under that or those people just happened to be there. But um, yeah, I had to look into that. Well, this one's a, an interesting program that been hearing a little bit about, but didn't really know what was up with it. DARPA completes the Underminer program. With, and the Underminer program is demonstrating the feasibility of rapidly constructing tactical tunnel networks, which will re enable responsive resupply in denied environments. So you can have logistical support, pre-positioning supplies, 
um maybe even trying to do res rescue missions and stuff like that so uh, it's pretty interesting uh, and tunnels have definitely been a part of many many wars right so especially world war one I, I was interested to learn how much tunneling there was that oh, not just trenches but just straight up tunneling so um i think some it's of the, an interesting capability some some of the best stories that i think actually for tunneling come out come out of the civil war yeah uh, <laughs> like cold harbor where, <laughs> yeah yeah like they would they would like they would actually tunnel under like a fort and like put explosives and blow it up from the bottom like it's just like came up with some really inventive stuff um but then they but, would just charge right into the hole and get shot from the outside. From the oh, rail. really? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of the, yeah, one of the, the cases down there near Petersburg. Oh, okay. <laughs> Actually, I live near there. I should know that. Um, yeah, but I mean, yeah, you're right. The tunnels have been used. To, you know, the Palestinian-Israeli kind of conflict. Uh, you know, drug runners. Yeah, Vietnam. Like all that stuff. It, it seems like uh, seems like something that we should have more capabilities on, but. I'm not, I'm still not sure, like in some of the theaters, you know, if we focus on the Pacific theater, I'm still not sure like how feasible that is on some of the islands or, you know, is this feasible if you're operating on foreign territory to be like tunneling all over there, you know, <laughs> you know, um, underneath like maybe a housing development or some, you know, transportation line or something like, I don't know, at some point, you know, you kind of do have to have the right environment for this so um yeah be kind of curious how they're you know how they envision some of that uh being used but yeah definitely makes uh, it's an interesting project so last one we'll uh wrap up on here is broken arrow uh hypersonic program faces uncertain future after 23 uh so this of course is the the arm or the air force's hypersonic you know boost glide vehicle as opposed to hackem which is the air breathing vehicle and they've stripped out uh, the planned procurement of 12 arrows in the 22 budget due to those test failures. And they had asked for $160 million, assuming that the tests went smoothly. So I guess they're committed to more research development on the arrow. But, um, you know, we'll see if it ever gets into, in, into procurement. Hopefully it does. Uh, but it looks like Hackam, the hypersonic attack cruise missile, uh, a different kind of hypersonic might be gaining a little bit of favor it felt like in that article yeah the hackam's uh, an air breather so yeah i think um i think that one you know those two were always kind of competing a little bit so yeah it's kind of interesting i guess arrow with uh, the test failures you know led to uh you know falling out of favor and congress didn't approve the procurement so the air force probably took the hint and and sort of backed off a little bit on it i think is that the right is that the right way to go you know long term i guess we'll see but um yeah i, I do kind of hate like a couple of like kind of you know sloppy you know sloppy test failure it's not like a real test failure like it wasn't that it wasn't like the technology was proven to be you know too immature or too uh you know too faulty um never really seemed to have got a good test so i feel like it's a little premature to take this action but this uh you know, this is what happens. This is why you can't uh, you can't have too many failures. Well, it feels like it's almost no, it's a really signal tested. of you need to. But yeah, but isn't this like why go into procurement and like rate production? I get it. You you might want to have like that learning on the production line as well. But it seems like if you're just not even like have the test range competency, you know, like maybe maybe that kind of infrastructure needs to get built up first and then you go all in on production, you know? Yeah, no, I'm not saying going to full rate without the testing, you know, you definitely need it. I just meant like 12, but, but you know, you buying 12 of them. Yeah, 12 air, I mean, 12 yeah. is nothing. Yeah, let, let, let's, let uh, you know, and you need it, you need, you need test units anyway. Well, that's so. still a couple hundred mil, right? It's a couple hundred mil, but you need you need you need your test assets. So I mean, essentially, I view that as like test assets, right? That's what LRIP is for primarily. And so yeah, they get the, they should have let the twelve go forward, and then you know you know really kind of try to accelerate the uh, the testing. So you know, do a couple of faster testing cycles. I really do not That's, understand. I, I agree with that. I'm with I you. I, I don't understand why they why the Air Force takes so long between tests. It's like it must be a range thing or something, but. Uh, really long 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 time between tests and I yeah i didn't understand that part but yeah especially when the test failures are something kind of stupid it's just yeah. like 
let's just like let's get back out there <laughs> like like what could we salvage what can we use again let's just like get back out and do it again right yeah like that b52 one okay it didn't come off like go back fix the hitch and get up there like maybe two three weeks a month later but yeah it seems like it, it took a lot longer well, that um, might can... be something to do with like the software deployment potentially because right maybe like you would expect them to be like oh well this happened but we were able to turn it around super fast like you know the tech guys right like we're doing all the, the cool stuff right <laughs> but it doesn't seem to be the case well if it was a software thing yeah they definitely should have gotten it out there faster but um hey eric so can we can we actually end on the uh, the missile one i want I, I thought the uh, your the missile article was a was a good one because uh, this oh, is yeah. something we've we've talked a lot about yeah yeah, let's go with it. Uh, Air Force continues modest shift towards standoff munitions in new budget. So they're really kind of moving towards the JASM here, the JASM extended range. That's the joint air-to-surface standoff missile. Uh, so they're going to buy 150 of those, and that's 785 million, so a little bit more than a million per JASM ER. And then you also got the the LRASM, right, the long-range anti-ship missile. They're buying 28 of those at... 119 million so quite a bit more expensive for the el rasm but they're kind of i guess moving more towards uh these longer range standoff missiles and they're cutting back on things like jdams and small diameter bomb ones and even sdb2 small diameter bomb two, the stormbreaker uh so any i'm, I'm sure you got some thoughts there hit, hit me with it yeah no it's just that this is i think this is something that um there's been a lot of discussion on, but we really haven't seen a lot of the services ramp up their uh, munitions production. And, you know, one big lesson we learned from Iraq and Afghanistan was we neglected to keep our stockpiles at a, you know, a, a good, good rate. And uh, we started running out. So, yeah, I think this is, I think this is a really good signal that the services are starting to, um, starting to get the message. Um, Jasmine ERs, you know, uh, that 550 buy, that's a big buy. So that's, that's, that's really good that, that they're at that level. That's a thousand kilometer range missile. So that one is going to be extremely, um, applicable for the, for the China fight jazz, uh, the El Razum, same thing. That's all, that's a long range missile, um, small diameter bomb too. So, so this is where I think it's, we start to see the need for a, a new weapon because, you know, JDMs have a 15 mile range. That means you got to be super close. Small diameter bomb two have a forty mile range, um, so you, you got to be really close on some of those. So we really need to get into the cruise missile uh, kind of domain. Um, one of the things in that article was about uh, from Mark Gunzinger from uh, AFA, the Air Force Association's Mitchell, Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and he, he made the point that yeah, we need more JASMs, but that in a you know large scale campaign, you're going to run out of those doing the high cost per round. So. He was proposing something like a, some kind of direct attack munition like JDAM with uh, some kind of, you know, rocket uh, motor to extend their range. I think we have to start looking at some of those type of munitions. Low cost, something that, you know, you know can get it into theater. It's not going to be stealthy. It's not going to be, uh, um, you know, the most exotic. But, you know, have a laser targeter or some kind of, you know, some kind of targeting capability. Um, and uh, have quantities, get the quantities there so that if something does go down, we can actually, you know, execute the fight. Because if you run out of, this is the, this is the thing, right? If you run out of missiles and, and bombs, you know, unless you've destroyed all the targets you plan to destroy, the, the war is coming to an end. And this is what Russia is seeing in Ukraine. So, um, so yeah, so this is a really important one, I thought. Well, do you think, uh, I guess you're, you're always going to want that, uh, kind of like mid-range, right? Something that's cheap and, you know, has got the range. Right. But Gunzinger was also saying, it was just like, oh, well, you know, we want it to be lightweight, but deadly, but long range. <laughs> and it's just like, it, and he even said it, it's just like, I, like, how do you even get there, right? Because like, whenever you, you want it to go longer range, okay, well, it needs more fuel. And it's like, okay, well, now I need a bigger form factor. And it's just like, you kind of spiral out of control to some to some degree. You know, do you think, they're like they, they just should definitely be working on stuff like that but you know shouldn't they just also be buying sdb1s and jdams and you know stuff like that right now because you know if they can't get the production rate up you might as well just buy the hell out of them now and stockpile yeah i mean i think if we had if we had a bunch of unmanned drones that could actually carry those weapons um 
I think it would make more sense. Um, and so, yeah, I think it depends on how we employ them. If we're going to employ them with a manned platform, then it doesn't make sense. And so I think, I think he's right. I, you're right that the requirements, I mean, a lot of these missiles that, um, and bombs that we have, you know, uh, the, the more exotic ones have a lot of electronics, high end electronics. And we're talking like, you know, the best microchips you can buy, uh, you know, all kinds of advanced capabilities, advanced sensors, you know, that's where I think you have to start to look at the requirements and see what can you sort of squeeze out? Like, okay, do we need three sensors? Does it need to be redundant? Does it need, you know, to have all this, uh, you know, additional capability or does it, or can we do with, you know, one type of sensor that's maybe suboptimal, but, you know, you can get enough in the range to take out the target you're going after. Maybe it doesn't need to be precise within, you know, three centimeters. Um, maybe you, you know, you just plan to put three or four on the target, recognizing that, you know, one or two will probably, you know, go off or something. I, I just think, they, you know, we just need more thinking around that because we're not going to be able to shoot enough exotic missiles and we're not going to be able to get close enough in the current CONOPS with uh, the bombs that we're buying now. So it's just, uh, there's something missing here. And, uh, you know, I think uh, hopefully they'll, hopefully we'll see it in the future budget cycles or, you know, some of these new next gen weapons coming out that kind of fit that middle range, like you said, uh, something to, something that's cheaper and we can get them in quantities, but also has a little bit more capability than, than some of the, some of the JDAMs. Yeah. How come uh, scaling up for, you know, a full scale war, a total war of some sort, that's never in a requirement set, right? Like this thing never, like, I just need a hundred of them. All right. <laughs> like, where, where's the required, like, how does that just drop out of the J-Rock? No, they do. They have numbers for things that they view as, you know, the operationally, you know, the, the numbers that you need to execute various deliberate operations that they have planned. But, but I'm saying, like, are none of them that they're because they always move towards such high complexity and multi-mission type things like none of these things can be scaled when they need to be. I also just don't think that we I don't think the numbers that we have, I don't think the numbers that the, that the J-Rock or the Joint Staff tracks, I don't think they're adequate for the these, you know, a potential conflict where, you know, if you have operations go beyond. 30 days and you're doing, you know, a thousand sorties a day, you know, you're, you're done. So I think, I think they need to think broader in terms of, you know, a conflict that, you know, let's assume it's, it's like a Ukraine Russia thing where we we're trying to keep Taiwan alive, you know, and uh, it's three, four months where we're, we're having to, you know, uh, fight that conflict. And um, you know, what would you need for that? So I think, I think part of it is just like the operations that we envision don't always, uh, don't always have the numbers and so it doesn't doesn't get the support for it and hopefully that's being recalculated based on some of the things that we're seeing and you know as we understand the theater we have to operate in better but the, the numbers that i saw back in the day i were just you know too low we need we need a lot more stockpile than that yeah well you got to use the right munition for the right target right <laughs> so you, right. Don't, you yeah. don't put the expensive ones on the on the cheap things that you could have done for at a lower cost somehow and that's why Switchblade is so so incredible. I mean, it's it's amazing to see like the Ukrainians, you know, using some of these loitering munitions where they're taking out like, you know, a tank or you know some expensive combat vehicle with this like you know super cheap little little munition. I mean, that's that's the best that's the best balance right there, right? It's like super cheap weapon, expensive system. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're they're sixty k for um, the Switchblade three hundred, which is like anti personnel and arm not armor and then the armor is 240k per so yeah, that's not bad it's not bad i mean what's you're right it's not what's, as cheap, a jade, yeah. what's a jdam at do you know yeah jdms are like about 25k but that's for the kit the the bomb body that assumes that the bomb body is is in existence so we do have a lot of bomb bodies in in stockpile um but but uh yeah 25k is for the kit i forget i forget what the bomb yeah because just getting the munit like the ordinance on there is probably pretty like pretty expensive just that right but well it's actually like, done by the army the army does it as an organic capability for that yeah for for the switchblade well for no for for bombs there, okay there. yeah well that that seems like something that should be within their cognizance yeah um, but one of the things about the switchblade is i wonder how much of like are they making a big profit on that right 
and like how much of that cost is like software development because if you have to scale it i'd rather have something where most of the cost was software right uh, so that that means you're you're already way down the learning curve kind of yeah i don't know the switchblade i also don't know that it's been bought in uh, you know kind of a you know, high high end production rate yeah i bet you could get that cost down significantly if you were you know if you're buying it in uh you know economic order quantities i guarantee you that number would, would drop significantly we saw that with a number of munitions because once they get this once they get the plant set up and once they get like the you know the processes and everything sort of established it takes a little bit to get that to get to that product the production capacity of whatever xx but once the a vendor gets there they can really start to churn them out and the, the, the people on the line just get more efficient. So I think, you know, I think it just depends on, uh, you know, showing them the commitment. So they invest in, in, in you know, in all the efficiencies and, and the, the tooling and stuff that they need to. And then, uh, you know, making sure you kind of keep that steady state. So, yeah, if we go all in on switchblade or we go all in on, you know, some different, different munitions, we should just have like a minimum order quantity that we guarantee them. That's really what they, what the vendors want to see. So, well, that's all we got time for this week. Thanks for joining me, Matt. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time. <laughs>